A game of rugby takes 80 minutes. That's 4,800 seconds. But it only takes one to win a scrum, to steal a line out, make a break and score a try. One second for a hero to become a legend, for one team to become champions. And it's their line-out that creates the opportunities to score their tries, and that's exactly what happened. He goes wide, and he finds a winger. Oiderman, he's faster than a bald man's haircut. Oiderman, and he gets the try. What a heartbreaker. Welcome to MLR Kickoff with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Hey folks, welcome back to MLR Kickoff. Dan Power with you alongside the professor, as always, Pete Steinberg. And we are into number two for the 2022 season. Pete, how's the week been? Once again, I've got you on the road. It feels like Colorado just keeps evading you. It's it's a crazy January for me, Dan. I am in Newark, New Jersey. And actually, I'm not in Newark, New Jersey. That's unfair. I fly into Newark, New Jersey. I am in Montvale. New Jersey, doing some work with a client and here at the Courtyard Marriott. So um, very nice little restaurant next door, had a good lunch, a glass of wine, and I am ready to go. Yeah, it looks like you're ready for bed, actually. A nice uh, lunch and a glass of wine. That's usually the next thing I'm looking for. If I fall asleep halfway through this, just have Aaron nudge me and it'll wake me up. I love it. We need to hook up the little shock, our little cattle prod virtually and just zoop. Hold it, hold it. You You don't already have one of those? Got it. Well, I saw, I saw the, I saw the budget and and what they're paying Strobo now at MLR. There's no nothing left to, for the gadgets for the for the kickoff show, unfortunately. But uh, a big big week, lots happening. You see the teams are, have reported. They're back. They're running. We're seeing a lot of preseason footage from the teams, which is great. I'm loving all the social media attention, uh, the pain, the agony. I listened to your interview with Sayu Hila last week, and there was a couple of times he talked about doing the Bronco, yeah. where he's like, I'd rather be dead than doing this. And I'm sure there was probably about 50 or 60 players this week that are like, yeah, I, I agree with him. I'd probably rather be dead than be doing this right now. But for you as a coach, Pete, what was what did you look for in preseason in your players? You know, I, I, I think it's really important, and especially we've seen a lot of moves. I think it's really important to like really set down your values and expectations for the players in preseason. I mean, Dan, honestly, as a coach, I always had a good – like performance coach, that was their job to get them in shape, right? That allowed me to focus on the big picture. So there's really like probably two or three things that you want to do as a coach in the preseason. So one, lay down your culture, like get your leaders in your team to step up, start setting those expectations. Two is to embed like your approach to play, right? So you may not in preseason have your whole game plan on attack and defense in different parts of the field implemented, but but you, you want to have it so it can grow throughout the season, right? So you can be a better team at the end of the season than the start. So putting the fundamentals and some of those basic principles of your attack and defense and how you want to do that. And then the third thing to me is really about opening up the communication channels. And that's from both staff, coaches to players, players to players, finding ways for um, everyone to be able to communicate openly and honestly. And um, that's really critical in preseason because once you're in season, you don't have time to do that stuff. Like it's sort of the games come thick and fast and you're always problem solving. So embedding kind of like, hey, how are we going to talk to each other, the relationships that we have? I think those are really critical in preseason. 
Yeah, I, I had a much simpler one. A coach of, that I played for many moons ago, he wanted to know what you're doing when no one was watching in preseason. So he would hide throughout these conditioning things like in bushes and up in trees. Now, this, this is a rumor, but I think it is actually true that he paid the staff at the KFC that was near our facility in t- game tickets. And he would give the manager five tickets for a home game if he would continue to report on what players were going to the KFC during the week and ordering KFC. Because somehow he always knew when you'd sneak in a little bit of the Colonel's best. And let me tell you, uh, a Zinger Burger with the works and some of those gravy and those fries, Pete, it was a temptation that was too much for me sometimes. And sure enough, you'd be on the bike or you'd be on the rowing machine and you'd be like, yeah, good. See you working off that Zinger Burger, you know, you fat mess power. And uh, so, yeah, so I probably would have much enjoyed your uh, philosophies than that one. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very hierarchical deal, right? That's a very hierarchical coach, one that is like controlling of the players. One of the wonderful things about rugby down that makes it a little bit different than maybe some other sports, particularly in the US, is how player-centered it is. So when the game starts, the coaches can't be on the sideline. They have to be up in the stands, right? So they're up in the stands. They can't influence the game, right? The way you can in in other sports. There's no timeouts. There's no way that you can engage. So what you have to do is you have to create a culture and a system where the players can own it themselves. They're on the field. So if you have a coach that has too much engagement and input with the players, that can be a problem because that might end up creating problems once you're on the field. So for me, like everyone's, you know, people have said, oh, I love your philosophy. I'm like, no, it's the philosophy that wins, right? Because the coach isn't on the field. So like to me, it's your choice if you want to go to um, have uh, KFC and you have to look at your teammates in the eye and said, hey, I went to KFC and I didn't do everything I could for us to win, right? And if you create that culture, guess what? You won't sneak around going to KFC because you'll care what your teammates think. Mm. Teammates, 11 secret herbs and spices. I don't know, Pete. It's, it was always a challenge. <laughs> hey, we're not here to talk about fast food as much as I do love it now that I don't have to do Broncos and all that other fun stuff. We are going to dive into the Toronto Arrows on tonight's show. And, and no team in Major League Rugby sacrificed more last year than the Toronto Arrows. We've mentioned it many times, not only in this show, but on the broadcast throughout the year, the, the commitment they made to the league by relocating their entire operations across the border down to Atlanta for the best part of six, seven months. And, and to this, you know, we, we obviously are so thankful that they did it. Um, but Pete, you got a chance to sit down with their owner and, and the man running the shop there, Bill Webb. Great guy. We spent some time with him in Austin a few years ago, chatting to him about everything in Toronto. Really enjoyed my time with him. Sharp guy. Great guy steering the ship up there for the Arrows. Let's uh, dive in to Pete Steinberg with Bill Webb. Well, we are delighted to welcome Bill Webb, majority owner and president of the Toronto Arrows. Bill, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Pete. Thanks for the invitation. So in MLR kickoff, Bill, we're talking a lot about origin stories. And of course, Toronto wasn't there for the first year, although you were around, you were playing games, I think, in 2018. Talk to us a little bit about when you first heard about potentially professional rugby in Toronto. Well, the first, you know, the first iteration I heard about, you know, possible a possible pro league in, in North America was when that pro rugby league came around. And at that time, I had just joined the board of Rugby Canada and was asked to look at it. And my personal opinion was that that structure was not a very 
attractive one, to be frank. Um, and and I had no interest in getting involved in, in that personally. And and Rugby Canada separately, you know, didn't have much interest, and so we passed. And that was obviously a benefit um, in hindsight. In uh, 2017, I heard about through a mutual friend introduced me to Mark Winokur. And I learned more about Mark, who's now our, our chief operating officer and general manager, and at that time was the GM of the Ontario Blues, our provincial amateur representative team. And I went to a uh, to watch a match between the Ontario Blues and the Glendale Raptors at the time, and and uh, watch them watch them play. And after that match, uh, learned from Mark a little bit more about this league that was about to start in 2018 and that was major league rugby and so we we chatted briefly and in our very first conversation he said to me i said after we, we beat glendale in that match um pretty comprehensively and i said to him I, I asked a little bit about the structure and what he knew of the league so far and understood that it was going to be based similar to major league soccer uh, a single entity league owned by all the partners and I asked him a question, a very important question. I said, Mark, do you think we would be able to field a competitive team for this league? And without flinching, he said, absolutely, yes. And I said, well, how are you so confident about that? And he said, the team, the core of the team is right here, the beginning core with the Ontario Arrows or the Ontario Blues, and we could build off that. And so that was the beginning of some conversations. We subsequently went down to, uh, to Salt Lake City to visit with uh, you know, the, the league commissioner and, and people to learn more about the league structure. And ultimately what we decided was, I'm an investment guy, that's my day job. And we decided to run an R&D season, sort of test it out and see if we could put together a competitive team, get some sponsors, get some investors. And that was the beginning of what, what was then called the Ontario Arrows at that point, but without before we had applied for league membership. So you, you started playing as that's that's really interesting bill i'm a you know my when i don't do rugby i'm a business guy as well and i'm in innovation that's one of the things i do so you literally took your business mind and said hey we're going to test we're going to go out there do an r&d before i put before i put money raise money right in this mm -hmm. we want to see if we can be competitive and you guys were right you won some you you lost some but you were competitive in pretty much all the games we were, yeah, we were very, we had a very competitive team. We, we were able to attract some sponsors. We were able to attract some other investors besides myself. And we felt confident that people would, and we were able to sell tickets for people to come to those exhibition games that we played, you know, in, in Toronto. And it was well, it was well received. And it was something that I could see, you know, as a supporter of the game um, and, a, and a believer in the future of rugby in North America, I could see where this sort of, of, uh, structure and this sort of entity would be have some real promise and you know and we could build a world-class sports and entertainment organization as part of a what would become a world-class league and knowing that North America both the United States and Canada is a very strong focus for the growth of this sport from rugby world rugby sponsors and rugby fans around the world so there was a real opportunity here to to do this. Now, you know, we, we, we want to um, share a little bit with people that may be new to the game um, about uh, a little bit about sort of the culture and tradition. And, and Canada has a very strong culture of rugby, um, a lot of it from its relationship to the UK. And Toronto itself has a very strong foundation. Can you talk a little bit about how important that was for you when you started thinking about 
creating a professional team? Yeah, rug <clears throat> rugby's been played in Canada since going back to the 19th century. Um, you know, in the early 19th or the early 20th century, very early 20th century, played, you know, the All Blacks came to visit back in the day. There were overseas touring teams. Um, so the sport has, has been around for a long time. You know, the first rugby match in North America was played between McGill University and Harvard University back in the 1870-something and grew from there. You know, if you look, it's interesting, if you look at the Canadian Football League, which is our you know, gridiron, as they would call it overseas, our version you know, of American football, the, the Grey Cup, uh, the, which is our equivalent of the Super Bowl, actually says on it, for the Canadian Rugby Union Champions. So at some point along the way. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> trophy, that's, a, that's a bit of trivia. The, the, the that's a, that's the trophy, a great connection. The got away, got away from rugby as, as Canadian football evolved. But, uh, you know, we've had a strong, strong tradition of playing the game from coast to coast. Um, you know, the real, the biggest hotbeds just due to population and climate are Ontario and British Columbia are two of the bigger, you know, uh, unions. Um, and we now obviously we have Rugby Canada as our national union. Each of the provinces has a, a provincial union or a provincial sports organization. Um, and, and the sport is played by, you know, men and women, obviously. I, I like to point out to people that it's the only contact sport where men and women play by exactly the same rules. And uh, Canada has, you know, uh, in spite of our failure to qualify for this coming World Cup, um, which I think the Arrows really hope to be part of rectifying that situation for following the World Cups. You know, we've obviously had to deal with the pandemic. Our, you know, we've, we've, we've been to a quarterfinal before. Our men, our men and women's sevens have been very competitive over the years. And our women's 15-a-side team um, came second in, in, you know, World Cup earlier in the last decade. So um, we do have a proud tradition. There's a bit of a rebuild going on for the men's senior program um that the arrows are proud to be a part of but it's a, a sport that's grown and in particular it's been growing amongst uh, um, amongst women which is very great which is great to see so you you decide you're going to join major league rugby and you've got to stand up both a team and an organization from scratch what were some of the things that were like surprised you in that process um and what were the things that really challenged you well, the number one challenge was obviously the time. We, from the time we were actually admitted to the league in November of 2000, uh, November of 2018 to the time we were competing in, in February of 2019 was less than 60 days. It was around 60 some odd days. Um, now, at that point, we had created an exhibition squad, you know, playing just exhibition games. But we had to do a lot of things, negotiate a broadcast contract, uh, hire and staff, you know, full-time positions, because prior to that, you know, we had to finalize contracts with all the players. We had to supplement our roster with a few overseas players and some players from other parts of Canada, quite frankly, because not everybody who competed in that, on that exhibition squad, the Ontario Arrows, was able to play on a full-time basis for us. So we had to fully staff the roster. We had to staff the, the, the front office negotiate broadcast contracts, negotiate uh, um, uh, uh, sponsor uh, agreements, which we did. We had to sell tickets. We had to brand the team, um, which we did as the Toronto Arrows, um, you know, and named after the, the not, not that all Americans know this, but the Avro Arrow was a 
probably the best jet fighter in the world that was developed in the late 1950s by Canadians. And uh, we named it after, after that, after the Avro Arrow, something that was something uniquely Canadian that we could be very proud of. And um, had to field a team and start competing. And uh, so time was of the essence. And those were all the pieces that we had to, you know, pull together. It was quite a you know, remarkable effort. I was really pleased, though, by, you know, it was when we pulled the trigger and said, okay, we're doing this. The fact that we had investors come forward, the fact that we had a broadcaster, you know, TSN would cover the games coast to coast for us. And the level of support from some uh, critical uh, commercial sponsors, it was very, uh, the support's been very good. Very good. Even before we got to the challenges of COVID and, and whatnot, from the beginning, people were very supportive. Now, Toronto is a, um, a little bit unique in Major League Rugby because of its connection through the, the Ontario Blues and through Rugby Canada, that it's a little bit more integrated into its national governing, or it feels, at least from an outsider, a little bit more integrated to its national governing body than um, the teams in the U.S., um, where there's a relationship with USA Rugby, but not maybe not as close. Can you talk about sort of, you know, again, the you had the structure, right? You had coaches, you had high-performance people. They were all working either part-time or volunteer for Ontario Blues, and you had to switch them into the professional side. But can you talk a little bit about early on why those relationships were so important to be able to stand up so quickly? Sure. And, and to, to clarify, the, the, the initial relationships were primarily with Ontario and the people who had worked worked and coached with the Ontario Blues. So Mark Winokur as general manager, Chris Silverthorne as coach, uh, uh, Corey Hector, who had been you know coaching the Blues at age grade and and also in the university system, our analyst Roden Lozada, our medical staff. Many of them had worked with the Blues or with Rugby Canada at various times over over the years, and um, they were willing to get stuck in and and you know sign up for. You know, uh, not not huge pay, but to get involved and support the game, and and we had the benefit of people knowing one another. There was some cohesion, both off the field and on the field. Again, the team wasn't 100% Canadian, but we made a commitment. This is important from the very beginning that at least 80% of our roster, to pick a number, 80% of our roster would be Canadian eligible players. We want to, one of our missions here is we want to develop a world, world-class sports and entertainment business, and it is a business. We want to grow the game of rugby, and we really want to grow Canadian talent. We want to grow the game for both men and women, attract people to the game. But we also want to develop Canadian talent, both in the, in the, in the, the, the senior team itself, in our academies, and in our junior academies. And so we had, we've had from the very beginning an emphasis on on. Uh, hiring, contracting, and then ultimately drafting um, Canadian players wherever we wherever we possibly could, and uh, you know that's that's been the approach. The relationship with Rugby Canada is a purely voluntary and sensible collaboration. It's just a logical thing. They have no equity interest in what we do. Um, you know, I, I have to recuse myself occasionally at a Rugby Canada board meeting, but it's very very few when there's any kind of a discussion about things to do with the arrows because it's just a purely voluntary logical collaboration so many of our players over our existence have played for canada we've also developed players who've gone on to play for canada and we've had players who've come from whether it's from the canadian senior men's team or from the pacific pride um 
uh, Academy, the, the, the Rugby Canada National Development Academy, also known as the Pacific Pride, where some of those players have come to play with us. So it's been great in order that, you know, we could play and there's been changes in calendars. It's been complicated with COVID, but we would hope that as many of our players, uh, our, our best players would qualify to play for Canada. That's obviously the decisions of Kingsley Jones and the Canadian coaching staff. We have nothing to do with that, but we want to produce players that are ready to play for Canada. And on the other hand, we want to be, one of the important things we say is we want to be the destination of choice for the best Canadian players who want to play in Canada. It doesn't mean if you play for the Arrows, you're going to play for the national team at all. And sometimes people have, you know, players will have other aspirations that, hey, I want to see a different part of North America. I want to live in New Orleans or I want to live in, you know, Seattle or LA. Or whatever. That's all fine. We can't obviously employ and sign every single Canadian player. But what we do try to do is get a mix of, of the right type of players um, and, and just very, very good Canadian players. They may or may not be the, the best, but we want them to want to play here for their, you know, for the only Canadian team in the, in the MLR to play in front of Canadian fans, um, to develop cohesion. You know, if you look at, and it's, you know, it's not lost on us. We had the same idea, but we don't have the same degree of, of, uh, of organizational overlap that countries like Chile and Argentina and Uruguay and Portugal have where there is a professional team that's either owned by the union or strongly controlled and influenced by the union. That's not the case for, for Canada, but you can see where those countries have, have really, where they have similar problems. I mean, similar challenges, a large country, big geography, not necessarily a huge population playing a sport that's not the main sport in the country. It might be a secondary or even a tertiary sport, but you wanna have, you wanna do what makes sense. And so trying to organize and share resources in some cases and, and try to develop players and have a pathway is good for both the national body, it's good for all the provincial teams and it's good for, the, good for the arrows and good for growing the game. So that's, we just try to approach it in a logical, in a logical fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense for um, both uh, USA teams and, and Canadian and, and Toronto and hopefully future Canadian teams um, to, to support the, um, uh, the growth and development of national teams because that's often sometimes the biggest window of attracting new fans. Like, you know, if you're gonna play the All Blacks in Vancouver, you're gonna get 40,000 people there. If you play an MLR game in Camp Vancouver, you're not gonna get 40,000, but is there a way of using the Canadian national team of bringing new fans into MLR? I think those are things that we have to think about. And the arrows alone isn't enough to be able to support Canada, the Canadian player base, right? And so it's great that within Major League Rugby, Canadians with, in the US, but the US teams don't count as foreign players, that allows them. So you see good Canadian players. I mean, I think Canada could probably argue that it had the th three of the best open side flankers in the league last year playing in three different teams in Atlanta, Toronto, um, and in um, oh, San Diego. What am I? Not oh, sure. I've, I've lost it. But anyway, don't want, we don't want to say names. We don't want to. Yeah, we won't say names. But, but anyway, like like that's 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 good. That's good for the competition. So you you come into season one, and one of the biggest challenges that all the major league rugby teams have had when they're formed, and still it's challenging for most of them, is facilities. Talk a little bit about how you found a place to play. I mean, well, the next thing we'll talk about, Bill, is how you didn't play in that for the first three months of the season. 
Sure. Because it turns out that in January, probably not smart to play rugby. You, I think you just said that there's a major snowstorm that you've just had. But talk a little bit about what it's like as a new team trying to find a place to play where you can have fans and you can create that really good fan experience. Yeah. Well, fortunately, in our in our first year in 2000, well, remember, the only year we played home games was 2019. So in that right. year, That's we right. played in two. <laughs> <laughs> 2020, five games yep. all the way. All the way. All the way. And then 2021, you were in Atlanta, which was a huge commitment to the league. And I think one that we should all honor. And you're, you know, the longest road trip ever in rugby. All your team, all your players went to Atlanta, lived in Atlanta, and played as the Toronto Arrows in Atlanta. So that's interesting. So the only home games you've had is 2019. All right, let's talk about how you found a place to play in 2019. So in 2019, we, we divided between two locations, and we had used these two locations during our exhibition season. One was at York University in the north end of the city, and the other was Lamport Stadium down in downtown Toronto. Two very different facilities. We had to use two, but one, we wanted to experiment with both facilities and see how it would reset. Another was just scheduling and what was available because we had to play all our games in a window, basically because of the weather here, February, March, we're on the road. April, May, June, we're at home pretty much consistently. So we've got a, you're booking within a very narrow, narrow window. So we played in both those locations, both worked very well, each have their pluses and minuses and people have their favorites. This year uh, for you know, 2022, we are playing our games at the, a new stadium up at York University, not the one we played in before, but York Lions Stadium, which is a, a stadium built about five years ago for the, uh, the Pan Am Games. Lovely stadium, brand new pitch on it, um, full-size you know, rugby and, and soccer pitch. Uh, seats for the fans, like designated seating for the fans, accommodates 4,000 people seated and more like 5,000, 5,500 without even adding portable seats, what we could do. So it's a place where we could grow. We had a big, we actually did play an exhibition game there in October of last year called the Rugby Rally. Uh, it was using, it was sort of an Arrows 15 team versus the Atlantic Selects. And, and that was the first game, wasn't a regular season game, but the first game we played in two and a half years. And it was, the fans loved it. They loved the location. It's a minute from the subway, subway stop. It's very easy to get to. Um, and it did have a really, really good atmosphere. And the players loved it because the surface is brand new. It was the, that was the first rugby match to be played on that, on that surface. And so um, for, for 2022, that is where we'll be playing and also where uh, we've, been, we've been training as well. So, so final question about 2019, and then we'll, we'll pivot to um, uh, this, the upcoming year in 2022. Um, and then I have um, one more question about talent acquisition and where you get your players. But um, you, uh, you went on the road um, for the first, from in the first half of the season, you um, alternated wins and losses. You were very consistently inconsistent. One, one, lost one. Yep. Then you, um, you know, lost your first game at home to Nola Golden, a, very, a great game. I mean, a great game to have your first opening game. Mm -hmm. I mean, disappointing to lose, but a very exciting game. And then you went on a winning streak and that finished yep. up with the semifinals where you um, lost to the, to the eventual champions, the Seawolves. Talk a little bit about that first season. What was your greatest fear going into that season? 
And how did that turn out? Um, you know, look, the, we were very pleased in our first season in the league to get to the semifinal. Right. Was incredible. I think we were very, we were very pleased. We weren't daunted. One of the, one of the strengths of our team since the beginning is the cohesion. Um, the fact that we do have a number of, you know, large proportion of players who are Canadian, even, and names have changed and guys have come in and out, but there's some familiarity um, and, and the, the non-Canadian players that we, that we do hire, we're very selective about, we want to, it's really team first and it's really about character and, and as much as anything and, and guys who buy into our project that we want to win and we want to be a first class professional sports and entertainment organization. But they also, they also understand that there's a project here to help Canadian rugby and grow the game and they're part of it and they do feel part of it. And, and so, um, you know, the fears were being on the road for that coming. We were flying back and forth for them for the most part, but that's daunting. And we figured if we could come back from that road trip, you know, 500 winning half our game, it had put us in a good spot. And it did. We outperformed in the last half of the season. I mean, we really turned it on and kudos, you know, kudos to the guys and to our staff. And we had the, in that particular year, we had the lowest injury rate in the entire league. So kudos to our medical staff, kudos to our strength and conditioning staff led by Sean Harrison, keeping the guys in shape and mostly kudos to the players who really looked after themselves and really like on and off the field. And we put a heavy responsibility on them to, to follow you know, protocols even outside of COVID and really look after themselves. Cause it is a long, this is a war of attrition in these season. And we really believe that the, the team, we've really focused not so much on superstars, but on depth, depth of talent and breadth of, of talent. And, you know, having guys who can stay healthy and pitch in when the inevitable injuries or unavailability for whatever reason happens. So, um, you know what, we, we had a strong, high ambitions for that, for that season. Uh, we actually, you know, thought we could win the whole thing and we came, we came pretty close. So we were, we were very proud of, of the 2019 season. Let's talk a little bit about your overseas recruiting, because you talked um, about being a place of um, destination for Canadians, but Toronto has also been pretty good at recruiting some players from South America. I mean, Gaston Mieres was early, Thomas De La Vega, like, which is sort of maybe not the place you would think someone from Argentina or Uruguay would go would be the great white North. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about, um, and then Sam Malcolm has come back. So obviously it's very attractive. Someone that went off to play in Japan. Can you talk about what makes maybe Toronto, the arrows, maybe the city itself a little special for some of those overseas players that creates it as a place that people want to be, despite the fact there might be snow on the ground for the first three months of the season. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say, even separate from the arrows, Toronto is a wonderful city. It's incredibly cosmopolitan, very multicultural, lots to do, very, very tolerant society. I mean, Canadians are pretty laid back. It's a really good place to live. I mean, I've lived all over the world and, and, and you know, Canada is great and Toronto is a wonderful city. Um, there are other great Canadians, but Toronto is a great place to live. Great food, great clubs, great culture, sports. You know, it's a real sporting city as well. We like, we love winners. So there's always a lot of pressure here and we've got every major sports league is you know, here in Toronto. So was, there's, there's pressure, but people love their sport. Um, <clears throat> as an organization, we 
um, first of all, it's really about the type of player that we're attracting. As I mentioned, it's really about mentality, culture, et cetera. But the way that we've sourced these players and found them is really through word of mouth and our connections. So, you know, Mark Winnicker, Chris Silverthorne have been on tours with the Ontario Blues in the past and made connections with folks in, you know, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile. Um, we have a relationship with the, we have a, a, a networking relationship with the Hurricanes in New Zealand. And they've been helpful in guiding us towards players, you know, both in their system and otherwise. And we've just got a lot of great people on the team with a great network and we keep our, you know, eyes and ears open. We try to focus on countries where, and, and this has proven really helpful in, in COVID times, is where it's really easy to get visas. You know, we're a Commonwealth country. So focusing on countries where it's relatively easy to get a work permit um, for Canada, just because there's an inevitable delays and everything. So that, that's how we've gone about it. And then what's happened later on is that players have referred other players. And that's the best situation when a player can go and tell somebody, hey, I played for the Arrows, um, you know, really good setup, good people. They looked after us well. Um, no, not always perfect. And hey, we had to go through a really tough year in Atlanta last year, but there were some benefits to that we can talk about as well. But it's really been a lot of our players are guys who've pointed us in the direction of uh, friends that they, they believe and know would fit in to our, uh, to our environment. That's great. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, 2022 as we finish off. Obviously, very, very tough year um, in Atlanta. Competitive, right? The team was competitive but was really struggled to play its best. Um, and, and some of that is some of your best players. I mean, this is sort of part of the reality of a new professional league. Some of your best players are Canadian internationals that have really well-paid jobs, right? And they're in Toronto. And it's hard to sometimes get them to, like it'd be hard for them to give up that job and come down. Um, but just a grind about being away from home. So when you look at 2022 and beyond on the field results, right? Where would you like to see the program grow and the club grow the most? Where, what are your goals, maybe off the field, um, you know, beyond, hey, let's, uh, let's win this thing? Yeah, well, a couple of our goals are, one, we do, we want to win an MLR Shield and bring that north of the border. And it would be a huge jumpstart for Canadian rugby. It would be a huge morale builder. Um, we think we're capable of it. You know, we need to prepare to perform and and it's within our reach we have a very cohesive team we're very excited about the, the roster that we pulled together um you know everyone's here um virtually everybody now has had covid and <laughs> is now free to is now free to travel and it's just a reality they're all boosted everybody's boosted they've either boosted or they've had it and we're prepared to travel so we want to win we want to compete um and we want to grow our brand across the country and to that end you know, right now we are the only Canadian MLR team. We, you know, we as much to be loved to be thought of as the Arrows, as the Toronto Arrows, because our, our team has become more diverse in terms of its Canadian composition and where people are from, as well as the international composition. We are playing our first home game of the season out in Langford, British Columbia on February the 11th. And we're really excited about, and there's a lot of excitement that's actually getting announced today as we as we tape this a little bit a little bit later today um, what's well, been announced but the, the the formal release and tickets will go on sale and people on Vancouver Island and in British Columbia are really excited about that that's probably something we're going to do 
um, you know, could be one, could be even two games a season um, or in more preseason games in more normal times post COVID. Uh, we played exhibition games in Halifax before people in Montreal want us to do something there. We've had inquiries from, you know, Edmonton and Calgary. And so doing more of that and growing our brand is important. Uh, very importantly, the most important thing we talk about in MLR is putting bums in seats. And so being back, um, being back in, uh, in, in, in Canada, playing games at home in Toronto and, and, and in Langford and putting a really good crowd, you know, three, four, 5,000 people per game in seats will be uh, a top is our top priority and, and putting on a great, a really great game day experience. And we have a, an excellent front office working to that end to, to do that and lots of exciting plans made. And, and uh, you know, by the time April, May comes around, we've got a audience here of supportive fans who haven't seen a regular season home game in almost three years. And we think they're dying to see some rugby. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I wasn't saying last question, but Bill, as you um, used games as, as experiments and R and D are these games around Canada, a precursor to another Canadian team? Not necessarily. No, it, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, there's been lots of people exploring it. Nobody's sort of pulled the trigger yet. I, I've been in talks with a number of different groups in different areas. The, um, you know, the, the, the expansion fee is pretty significant now to get yeah. in. Um, you know, people have concerns about COVID and, and whatnot. Um, you know, we would work closely with anybody in Canada and then have in conversations with, to do research and share everything that we've done. If somebody's interested in doing it, um, so, you know, but no, it's not, these aren't specifically for that reason. One is the reason we're playing in Langford is to help with the scheduling for the, for the league. It really helps for us to be able to play uh, a home game during that February, March timeframe. And it's great for us to be able to, to grow our brand in another, you know, rugby hotbed within Canada. So that's the more, the more specific reason, but always happy to talk with people who are interested in growing the game in Canada and in other locations. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, your time and uh, your history, right? This is sort of like an oral history of the Toronto Arrows. Like I said, I think what the Arrows did last year was phenomenal for the league. The easy thing would have been, hey, you know what? We're going to shut down for the year, but you guys stepped up, made it work. And um, I think, you know, um, really enjoyed watching the team play, recognized it wasn't necessarily you know, your best performances, but I thought under the circumstances, you guys really were very credible um, in the competition. And we look forward to, to home games in front of strong crowds in Toronto and a team that can really perform its best this year. So good luck. Thanks very much, Pete. It's been a pleasure to be with you and uh, arrows up. There you go, Pete. And I'm predicting a, a real big bounce back this year. And it's, it's, Again, that's low-hanging fruit, right? That's a pretty easy, because they're going to be at home. There's Things are going to be easier for them, but uh, I just feel like they'll take the lessons learned from a very difficult year and apply them as motivation for this year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's interesting. You know, we, we, we talked to Bill, you know, we heard Bill talk a lot about the start of the um, Toronto Arrows, um, a little bit about where the name Arrows comes from that was, like, I think, I think pretty interesting. But, but... It really comes from this foundation in Ontario of solid rugby. And so when you take their foundation away, right, which is like this um, community, this strong rugby community in, 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 in Ontario around Toronto, and you go to Atlanta, that's taking like the heart out of that team. There's, I don't think there's another team that's as 
fundamentally based to where they're from. I think it was interesting to hear him talk about wanting to be the destination for all Canadian rugby players that, mm. you know, and playing in other parts of Canada, there's a lot of interest in getting them to play and kind of them becoming Canada's team. I thought that was really interesting. And they'll really be able to show that with, you know, the game in Vancouver that they have against LA this year. And then of course their home games. And it blows me away. And, and Bill said it in the interview, and I didn't even realize that he said, we've only ever had home games in 2019. Yeah. Like, that's the only time they've had home games, right? Because it was their first season the end of their 2020 was only a partial season and all of those games were away 2021 they were in atlanta so they are this is a team that's really looking forward to playing at home and i think i agree with you dan i think it's going to give them a big boost i mean i, got, I, I may still have a little bit of covid fog here but you kind of say 2019 you're like well it was just last year yeah I, like, it's hang exactly, a second COVID fog it's 2022 what's happened yeah. to the world um well you talked about heart and soul I don't think there's any more heart and soul player in the scene than the guy we're going to talk to next. Truly believe that the Arrows can build an entire franchise around this guy. He's a superstar, not in the making, in the present. I think not only for the Arrows, but for Canada as well. It's number seven, uh, probably the most dominant force at the breakdown in Major League Rugby since he came into the league in 2019. Lucas Rumble, I got a chance to chat with him earlier today. All right, joining us now, Toronto Arrows and Canadian international, Lucas Rumble. Lucas, firstly, welcome to the show, brother. How are you holding up? How's the off-season been for you? And um, what's what's new in your life? Thanks uh, thanks for having me. Uh, holding up pretty good here. We got, uh, we got dumped on in Toronto uh, yesterday, actually, about 60 centimetres, apparently. So we, uh, we had a snow day on, uh, on the Monday there, tons of Zoom meetings, but... We're able to get the cars out and, and get into training uh, today, so very happy to be able to do that. So for for the for our American fans that are dying on their their system of measurements and staying with inches and all the other weird ones, it's probably what you reckon about three feet of snow. I, yeah, I, I guess I don't know. It was enough to cover wheel wells uh, of most cars, so it'd be it'd be a lot of buried cars around the streets right now. God, no wonder you guys are so tough up there. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. Well, mate, we've got you on here. We wanted to learn a little bit more about who Lucas Rumble is, how you got to where you are today, and, and where you're going in the future as well, not only with the Arrows, but with Canada as well. Um, let, let's start international because it's kind of relevant. Some dark days for, for not only Canadian players, but fans as well, missing out in the World Cup and the first time in the men's. Um, Tell us a little bit about the camp and, and things leading into it. Was in hindsight, were you seeing things that were a concern going into those games against Chile, or are you as blindsided as everyone else by these results? Uh, I wouldn't want to say blindsided. Um, you know, we respected our opponents. Um, I, I think we just let ourselves down at some some key moments there, and we were a, a younger team with uh, a lot of guys coming through and. You know, Rugby Canada itself and the team has kind of been struggling for oh, since probably the second year that I started playing with them. Um, so for, for us, it's kind of, I guess, a big moment where we can, you know, either pack it all in and be disgruntled and, and not put a step forward or we can, we can come back stronger and really use this, you know, qualified for 2019 via the repechage and the skin of our teeth kind of thing. And, uh, and then it was sort of feeling that way again, how we were going to go down a similar path. But now we have 
a good amount of time to build a solid base and, and get some guys, you know, moving through the MLR, playing a higher grade of rugby so that when it does come to those internationals, they're, they're switched on and ready to go. Yeah. You, you're, you're 26 now. So for you, another cycle is not a huge stretch. You, you'll still be, you know, in your late twenties by the time 2023 rolls, uh, sorry, 2027 will roll around. Um, are you, your appetite to go again now? Like, you've played in a world cup in Japan, but you want to get another one in the books? hundred percent. Um, I think playing in one is kind of like, it, it just feeds you to want to keep going back and keep going back and, and go to as many as you possibly can. Uh, I know myself, I'll, I'll play until, you know, the body doesn't let me do it anymore. And I'll just keep throwing my body out there and, until I'm not getting selected anymore. So for me, there's, there's no doubt in the fact that, you know, I want to play in 2027 and, Hey, if the body holds up, maybe in the next one. Yeah, well, let, let's talk some happy stuff. I didn't bring you on here to get you all depressed about international rugby. So we'll talk some exciting stuff. Toronto Arrows, you know, you, you come into the league in year two, you have an absolute stellar first season, debut season, uh, go on a, on a tear on the road and then come home very strong in Toronto. What we expected, you know, the Ontario Blues becoming the Arrows. Tell me about 2018, though, the year before the Arrows come in, sitting back and watching Major League Rugby. What was the atmosphere? What was the feel through the Canadian camp? A lot of guys went to Seattle and some others smattered around the league. But internally in Toronto, you guys knew you were going to come in. And when did you know you were coming into Major League Rugby? And what did you think of it as it was sort of kicking off year one? Uh, I was excited. You know, like uh, I've been watching, obviously, like any rugby fan of of the league and seeing how good it was, seeing the quality of it in its, you know, in its infancy and, and was kind of excited to get into it. I was actually training uh, on the island uh, in Lankford at the time. So I was based out, out West and, uh, you know, the Ontario Arrows were playing some of those warm-up preseason games with MLR teams and competing really well. I unfortunately had some injury trouble at the time and, and couldn't make myself available for those, but I was sitting at home on the couch and really just kind of itching to get involved because one, it was, you know, a really, really good opportunity to play some really good rugby. And, and two, it was fun to see the boys, you know, the, the Ontario boys and, and that staff and, and those guys come through and play at that high level and, you know, and show that they can do it. And it was, it was really exciting for me to, to watch that. And then I was just gung ho to get into it in the next year. Yeah, any temptation to come in year one? You said you obviously carrying some injuries probably made it difficult, but any of the teams, the, the original teams, reach out uh, to see if you'd be interested in year one? Uh, no, no. Uh, I was Idiots. At, I was at school at the time, to be honest, at Queen's University, so I was really focused on my uh, education, and then I shifted out west with the Canada program, and that's kind of where I, uh, I guess, laid dormant until uh, the Arrows entered the league. God, I wish I had your sensibility when I was your age, Lucas. My life would be so much smoother now. Good, good mother and studies. father. Good yeah, mother there and you father. Go. Shout out to Mr. and Mrs. Power. Thanks a lot. You let me down. You could have been like <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Rumble. But, so let's let's talk in. Year one's an absolute stellar, like we said. You, you have, uh, unfortunately, what would prepare you for 2021, right? Like the road trip at the start of the season with the weather, you guys, I think it's 10 straight or eight straight on the road. It was something ridiculous like that. Uh, then you come home and just mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. at home. I think you only have one loss in your home stretch there. Playoffs. Go to Seattle. What happened? The semifinal. The Seawolves, they get you at home there. 
what happened there? Just a little bit underdone, underprepared? What was the, the feel for that game? Oh, I, have to, I have to draw on my memory pretty Two good. years back, I know. I think the boys were honestly you. were just pretty banged up. Yeah. I, well, they're pretty banged up. I had uh, – I get, hopefully this is a theme, but I, again, had a little bit of injury trouble with my knee there. Um, so I had to uh, sit out uh, actually against Seattle. I uh, did my meniscus uh, when we were playing them at York. Um, we, put, we put a good, uh, good show on there and, and really you know, brought it to them. Um, but I think we started to run into a little bit of fatigue and injury trouble. And that was the year as well, where we had to play, I think it was like three games in like nine days or something. So guys were pulling some big shifts in there and, you know, had a few injuries and guys who couldn't travel to Seattle. Um, and, and Seattle honestly brought their A game and, and showed, you know, why they were where they were and why they deserved yeah. to be at the top. So I, I don't think it caught us by surprise, well prepared and, and, the team was looking forward to it. I think just they were the better yeah. team on the day. Yeah, Staller said he's going to kick every penalty like your face is on the end of the ball to show how silly you guys were leaving him out of the, the international <laughs> team. He's retired now. We can make fun of him, right? It's Sounds a game. right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about from from that season, which of was... Of course. Oh, the last I heard, the last I heard Staller's uh, farming somewhere on the, uh, on the island out there in Victoria, so I don't think he's getting up too much nowadays. He's farming all right. Pharmaceuticals. Better watch the border there for stall the trucks going through. Just make sure customs open those up. I'm not sure. Him and his mate Pablo doing a little business up there together, I'm sure. Well, let's let's go to a, a year that Arrows fans and players alike are probably going to want to forget. The the ultimate sacrifice year, right? You you uproot your lives, go to Atlanta, and you're there for a year. Talk talk to us about the experience and and get deep on this. Like really go into how difficult was it? Like, and at what point into the the week on week on week did you guys realize? Like, when did the homesickness start? To say, when did just the frustration of God, we've just our whole lives turned upside down, and uh, when did that kind of set in? And how difficult was it to get through that season? Uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I don't think anyone uh, wants to forget it on the on the arrow side of things. I think for us, it, it'll be a really big uh, driving factor. Um, you know, it's, it's an experience like anything in life. If it's bad, if it's good, you, you need to take things from it and use that to better yourself as a person, as a team, as an organization. I think we can do that and we have done that. And we're looking, you know, forward to this year being able to cross the border again, have a home and, you know, get back to that continuity of week in, week out, preparing for games in your own home venue traveling or staying at home just the kind of regular rugby that we're used to um to say how tough it was it was definitely way harder than i expected um i think we were so focused on COVID up here and it was a unique situation for us you know being in canada as well we had different regulations for training you know at the start of it was are we going to be able to train like what are we going to be able to do can we meet up like what are the rules or regulations we want to stay you know on top of everything be doing things proper and what was the season going to look like all these different questions were going through our mind and the players group and the management and coaches I think that was the biggest worry and um and then when we got a plan in place, it was, okay, we'll just get down there. You know, things will be easier when we're down there. It'll just be the rugby to focus on. Uh, and it unfortunately wasn't, you know, it's uh, it's easier said than done to just be so focused and honed in on rugby for that long. It's, uh, 
I don't want to say the tour from hell, but uh, all the negatives of tour you get, which are, you know, being too close to each other, not being able to escape rugby and, yeah. and do other things, you know, it really magnifies that doing it for that long. Um, any trip now, I think I take with, uh, you know, international or whatever it is would seem like a cakewalk compared to uh, Atlanta, but it, it was just a lot harder than I think we all expected. And I think the biggest thing was that, no escape mentality you know you're in the hotel you're, you're seeing staff you're focused on rugby a lot because there's really not much else to do um and those quiet comforts of home you know friends who don't play family who you know just want to chat about how you're doing or you know your dog or whatever it is it, it's not there yeah so it becomes uh you have to cope in other ways and you know, some, some guys don't uh, do it as well as others. And, you know, even for myself, there are times there where you're just like, what am I doing? Like I could be doing this and be so much easier, but the, luckily I had, you know, a good roommate and moments there that you can pick from, but overall it was definitely, definitely way harder than uh, we had anticipated. Yeah. If you, you imagine having a black cloud roommate in that situation, the old sad panda, you get back from practice and they just keep going down, down. I'm sure dude, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I, I agree. I think any, not just rugby, like any walk of life, any profession, if you immerse yourself in it too much, I don't care how much you love it. Eventually it's going to, you know, the, the well runs dry and it becomes difficult, but let's talk about you personally. I think at one point in the season, I, and I'm going to apologize in advance because it's, it's, it's the curse is a real thing. I may have done this to you. I've called you the like <laughs> head and shoulders league MVP Best player in the comp. You're absolutely killing it. Even in some like tough performances, the losing side, you statistically, you were just kill, absolutely killing it. You, you're at the breakdown, absolute machine. And then I, I'm not going to say the wheels come off because you're still playing good rugby, but man, the season just sort of like went bang, like a brick wall. Mm. I'd say it would have been around that round nine, round 10. Is that kind of when things really, even Fergie's pep talk started to just get a little boring? Yeah, yeah. Um, like it, I think it just was was a long year for me. I played a lot of minutes. Um, I was putting together a lot of eighty minutes and, and you know seventy minutes there. So I think it started to add up on me. Um, and, you know, I, I tried to cut my hair there so I wouldn't blend uh, stick out as much. Maybe you know, maybe I'd blend in with the crowd to get a few more steals. But uh, unfortunately. Uh, they, they caught on quick. I think they have my number, um, but uh, no, I think, I think the success early in the year, honestly, was due to that COVID kind of break there and, and not everyone playing. I think it, they got away from some fundamentals of the breakdown and um, I just found the opportunities were plentiful at the, at the start of the year and they not dry, you know, dried up, but uh, there was definitely less uh, of an opportunity at the end of the year to, to be getting as many steals as I was at the start. Well, I'm glad you actually brought it up because I think over the existence of MLR, you are the the ultimate, you know, breakdown stealing machine in MLR. You talked about fundamentals. Obviously, they're key without giving away the secret sauce too much here. But for younger fans and viewers who watch this, who, who play seven, who want to model their game around you, what are some of the keys that you're looking at when you're going into, you know, your defensive breakdowns and you're looking for those turnovers? I think uh, a lot of it is an attitude thing, to be honest. Um, a lot of the times you will be the first guy in there, but you're going to have to take a hit or two to kind of stay with the ball and get out. And you hear that 
a lot in games is didn't survive the clean out or wasn't on his feet or things like that. People put themselves into really, really good positions, but they can't take that extra little shot or something like that and knocks them off balance. I think it's having that it's cliche and kind of old school, but having that ability to just stick with it, I think will pay off. Um, and some days, honestly, it's just not going to be your day at the office and he will just take a beating, but it will be rewarded on, on maybe the next week or the week after. All right, who's who's the one player in MLR that you hate seeing coming in the opposite direction at a breakdown? Uh, I've been seeing it a lot in my career uh, with provincial stuff. It'd be uh, Matt Heaton from Atlanta. Uh, he definitely yes. knows all the tricks of the trade, and uh, he's cleaned me out uh, a fair few good times, and always you know gives me a smile, a smack on the head, something something after to let me know he's there. So. That's good. It's good the teammate. Isn't it weird that that uh, rugby is one of those unique sports where you actually go hard on your teammates sometimes, and some guy that you don't know, you have no relationship. Like you and Heats are obviously Canadian teammates and uh, competitive for that seven jersey internationally, but in a good natured way. But you go as hard, if not harder, when you see each other. But yeah, it's good. What what about on the opposite side when you're defending, when you're tackling? Who's who's the the toughest ball carrier to bring down in MLR? Ooh. Uh, you know, well, this year I'm I'm definitely going to be uh, a little fearful of uh, Benny Lesage. Um, oh yeah, seeing as he's on yeah. LA and uh, he's a strong, powerful runner. So uh, I haven't been on his side for a while, uh, and seeing how he moves and how he attacks, I'm uh, I'm definitely, you know, what? no, I am looking forward to it and I'm, I'm excited to see how it goes. But he'll uh, he'll be in the back of my mind probably all year. I think he is. Yeah, I, I couldn't understand a word. Uh, the left me a day ago, so, so good. No, he's a good player. I'm, I think he'll do well down there. I think uh, that back line will suit him well. Him and uh, Meeks in the centres would be pretty interesting. It's not bad, eh? I like it. Oh, it's not bad at all. But hey, everyone gets better, and you just got to you know combat it. All right, mate. Let's talk. Uh, let's let's talk the future. We talked the World Cup. Happy with the Arrows? How long you signed in Toronto for? How long can the Arrows fan expect to see Lucas Rumble? I signed a, another year uh, here. I've uh, you know extended, used my contract extension. Uh, I don't plan on going anywhere in the uh, the MLR really anytime soon. To be honest, uh, my parents are twenty minutes from where I'm living right now. They got the dog there, and you know the family's in town, and the team really does make you feel at home. So uh, yeah, for the foreseeable future, I guess. Uh, yeah, there is a family connection. It's actually my older brothers um, who were in high school at the time, and their high school teacher, uh, Paul Duras, uh, got them involved in, in rugby at the school, and I was looking for something to do in the summer uh, when I was in grade eight, and basically said, hey, you should go play for, you know, the Bonnie Beach Rugby Club in the summer. You'll, you know, you'll meet some good guys, and you'll have fun. It's a physical sport. I enjoy playing, like, hockey and football and things like that, so I said, sure, let me jump in, give it a shot. And I haven't looked back, to be honest. It's still still really good buddies with a lot of guys off that team. How many fake teeth do you have, Luke? I got to go uh, Gotta go to the dentist and get this one sorted uh, soon. I think my cap's ready. Fang, so. I didn't know what was going on with you. Had a cap and you've lost it? or I had a cap from when I was oh, – I was really young. I can't remember at the time. It was – no, not hockey. That was rugby. <laughs> No, not rugby. No, no sports. I was, brothers. Uh, no brothers. Uh, oh, man. So it was actually my sister was in a, like stuck in a forest somewhere. And I don't know, I was young. I think the Polar Express movie had just come out because I remember sitting 
sitting through it after I had done the tooth um, and my sister screaming, oh, I can't like I can't get out of the forest like uh, I need I need help, whatever, whatever. And so I'm like, oh, sweet. I'll just run in and, and sort you out, start running through some bushes and just boom, right into a rebar <laughs> pipe sticking out of the ground. <laughs> Smash the tooth in half and, you know, cut my lip open pretty good. And it was my uh, my aunt's first time watching us as kids. So she was all concerned and I'm smiling there like, oh, no, it's all good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> What's your auntie's name? Aunt Kim. Oh, I lost Kim you there, right? Me, so. What was it? I said uh, Kim. Honey Kim. Shout out to Honey Kim. Uh, she got kids now? Or did that scare her out of it? Two kids. Oh, God. God. Almost bigger than me now, to be honest. God help Honey Kim's kids. They'll either be the toughest kids on the block or they have the most stitches. Definitely. Well, good man. Hey, Super excited to, uh, to see you back out there. And, and I'm sure more than anyone, Toronto and the fans of the Arrows are excited to see you guys get home and, and play. Uh, Stadium-wise, I know that there was an announcement you guys have made a move to a permanent home for this season, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're up at uh, York University. York University. Um, one game in BC. Stadium. One game, uh, yeah, at, uh, out there in Lankford. Yep. And then, yeah, we're at the the stadium that they did for, uh, I think the Pan Am games uh, up at York there. So quite nice, quite new and uh, should be a, a good atmosphere. If I'm a new fan in Toronto, sell me, convince me to come out to a game. How, what would you say? It's pretty easy. You're going to watch uh, a bunch of great looking guys uh, run into each other for good, uh, good 80 minutes. You know, you'll get some good beers, probably some good cheers, enjoy the crowd with uh, some quality people and uh, you'll leave uh, Healthy, happy, and full. Oh, mate, sign me out. If I could watch 15 Lucas Rumbles in those little shorts every day, <laughs> every day, season tickets. I love it. Love it. All right, buddy. As always, an absolute pleasure, mate. I've loved watching you play throughout the first year's MLR for Canada as well. You've got a long career ahead of you. Exciting times up in Toronto. Welcome back to Canada and hopefully a, a good year for the boys in blue and white up there. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to, you know, ripping into this year. There you go, Pete. I, I, listen, you and I are big fans, huge yeah. fans of what he is able to do and how quickly he can turn a game. Unsung hero, uh, but I think the accolades are starting to come in on just how important he is. And we saw it this year when, when and I chatted to him about it, as the season kind of ground on and it affected him personally and his performance. And um, I think it's no surprise that once we saw that dip uh, from from Lucas Rumble that the arrows you know kind of trended the same way and it's hard to fault them when we we look back at what they did. Well, I mean you're right about the heart and soul. I mean he played like he he just plays 80 minutes every week, right? And there's and, and I don't know how sustainable that's going to be next year, right? I think that um, I think one of the challenges that Toronto have is how they can take their back row was so good but they only had three, and so their back row played 80 minutes every game and it just wore them down that that and the travel, but I, I agree with you. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, there isn't anyone that's better at the breakdown um, than, than, than Lucas Rumble. He, his body position's amazing. He, um, I think actually the thing that gives him the, the advantage is probably two things. One is his work rate. He just works so hard. If you just watch him, this might be a good little tip for people that are new to the game. Watch a Toronto Arrows game. Don't watch the ball and just watch Lucas Rumble. 
and you'll see how often he gets into the breakdown and doesn't get the ball. And when he knows he doesn't get the ball, he gets out again. He It's just a phenomenal mm. work rate. But then he has this great ability to read the space, right? And he knows when he can go attack the ball and turn it over and when he can't. And so just uh, like one of those players that you just want on your team, he'll win you like two or three balls a game. And that's really invaluable. But he'll also win you two or three penalties, which is just as good. And so, yeah, um, just a, a, a wonderful player. Um, you know, did you... I mean, I think that it, it would be interesting to know, um, you know, um, what he's going to do with his hair this year, because it's really easy to spot him when his well, hair's crazy. If you weren't across the street at the restaurant eating food and drinking wine, you would have known that he's growing the hair back out, much to the begrudging of his girlfriend. But uh, Toronto, the mayor came out, got uh, 500,000 signatures for Lucas to regrow the hair. Sounds like... Samson, bring him back. No, uh, and do, he, he set the stage beautifully for week two to run up against his old teammate, Ben Lesage as well. And, oh, you know, like yeah. he talked about him and Heaton, like teammates for Canada, but bang, they bang heads when they played Atlanta. You know, he's just absolutely fizzing to have a crack at Ben Lesage. Little drift across from Gitto, turn Lesage back inside, Rumble's just going to be peeling right across. and just, oh, oh, what are, what are the ribs called? The intercostals? Four and five around there? Just bang! Little rib tickler, can't wait, can't wait. All right, Pete, well, that's a good segue. We're talking defense, smashing. You're going to go into the lab now. You're going to break it down for us. We did attack last week, but you've got to play both ways in rugby. You've got to be able to do this just as well as the attacking, defending. In fact, most people will argue premierships are won on defense and well, championships are won on defense. So break it down. What is defense? Well, it's, it, you know, defense is the opposite of attack, Dan. Like, that's it. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks. Next week, I'm, yeah. dig in. Well, I mean, dig in. So, so, so the deal is that we talked last week about attack and we talked about the concept of space. And so when we talk about defense, it's all about denying space, right? And there's basically three areas of space on, 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 on the rugby field, right? So, so there's um, space that's wide, right? There's space that's in front of the uh, um, attack and there's space that's behind the defense. So there's three things that, that, that you want to be able to do when you play defense. You want to take away the, the, the space that's in front of the attack. And that's really taking away time, right? So you, And most defensive defenses make a choice, right? They either commit to say, we're going to take away the space in front of the defense and we're going to leave the space out wide and we're going to challenge the attack and say, you can't move it out that fast. We're going to cut off. We're going to come and hit you before you can pass that ball. And that's how Atlanta plays, right? So Atlanta plays very much um, pressure defense. They launch forward all the time and they just deny time to the attack and they try and get, knock down the attacking ball carrier before they can move it wide. Very, very good defense, right? I love it. It's like how I want to play. But they leave that space out wide. Interestingly, another very good defense last year was New York. And New York's defense also very good, but New York actually gives up that space, right? They say, we're going to let you go forward near us, right? Close in, because that's where we have a lot of defenders. Um, and that gives us time as a defense to cover wide. So they drift, you'll hear the term drift, right? So they'll drift out and they'll cover the wide space. And so defenses have to make that choice, right? You, it's, it, it's, you can do both. It's really, really hard. I don't think you can actually do both really effectively against a good attack. So defenders have to make the choice about, are we going to defend 
the space in front of the attack, deny them space, cut them off, and leave the space wide? Or are we going to defend the width and let them go forward close in? And that's what defense is. Those are the two major parts of space you think about on defense. There is one more, and that's behind the defense, right? And so you think about kicks, and part of defense is being in a position to field the kicks, okay? And so there's that deep space that defenses have to think about, and you'll see a lot of rotation that happens. You'll hear rotation, and that means that there's no, the scrum half will drop back, and the back three, the wing, the fullback, and the wing, they will rotate. So one wing will come up to take away that space that's wide, right? They'll deny that space that, that's wide. That means the fullback has to cover the space where the wing was. That means the wing has to cover the space where the fullback was. That means the number nine. So you'll see this rotation where they always want to make sure they have someone because the goal of the attack on a kick is often, I just want to find grass. I want my kick to land in the grass. It's a funny shaped ball. It could go anywhere. So if I land... If I get it on the grass, then I'll be um, really effective. And the goal of the defense is always to catch the ball before it bounces. Because if I catch the ball before it bounces, I can attack really well. So defense is really about that. It's about the choice about which space you want to defend and then really committing on how you defend that. Yeah, I think commitment's probably the key word there, right? Defense, a lot of people say this. There's, there's the technical side to it, which is true. You, you train, you defend, you drill it, but it's an attitude. you got to want to it's a physical game. You have to want yeah. to be in front of another body and commit yourself to it. I sprung this on you last week. Top three attacking players. I'm going to do it again, Pete. I'm sorry. Top three defenders. Who are your top three players to watch defensively in Major League Rugby? So, so I'm going to I'm going to add one more thing to the defense okay. because then I can choose my player. Right. Okay. So there's one more thing you need. Whatever your defensive structure, what you need is time. So when a tackle is made. Right, You want to slow down the ball that the attack can win in that ruck. So the tackle's made, players from both sides come in. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, yesterday, last week. Right, And, we, um, and what you want to do is you don't want to let the attack win the ball quickly. Because if they win the ball quickly, they can move it before you defend your structure. So there is that one piece about contesting for possession. And if you contest for possession really well, Right. Then you're able to slow down the attack. That means that you can build your structure and you can commit. You can be effective in how you commit. Right. Because you just need time to build that defensive structure. And so we've already talked to him about him today. The person who does that the best is Lucas Rumble. So for me, it doesn't matter what kind of defense you play. If you have a Lucas Rumble on your team, Luca, like that, that flanker, that open side flanker that can slow the ball down, you can play an effective defense. If you don't have that, it's really hard to play effective defense. So number one would, would be Lucas Rumble. One of the players, and he wasn't able to show it last year because he was pretty injured, but one of the players that defends that space in front of the attack that launches and really cuts off the uh, um, the, the attack is um, JP Duplessis. Steel players. It's just you do. Oh, hold on, hold on. Well, one. you asked me who my top three were. You didn't yeah. say that you were going to have a top three. Same as last week. Why you could have got off script, man? Why are you going to go lone wolf for? Okay, so then my third person. Uh, okay, all right, fine. I'll I'll let you go too. So so let me. JP Duplessis, very physical defender, wins the contact and is really good getting off the line and shutting down the attack. Okay, all right, we get two. I would say my number one actually comes from Atlanta, and I know you love that defense. It's Johan Momsen. He was the leader defensively. 
led the league in dominant tackles last year, was third in the league in overall tackles. Hold oh, uh, oh, oh, on, hold oh, on. Are you turning the tables here? Like you're shouting stats at the professor? Hey, hey listen, I'm like, uh, I'm like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. Like I'm just mopping the floors around the professor's lab all the time and all of a sudden... <laughs> but it turns out you're the genius. I'm the genius. I've just, you know, I just got on the wrong side of the tracks and had a, you know made a couple of bad choices in life and ended up as a in a custodian role but really I'm the I'm the rugby genius not you Pete no I'm kind of cheating because it's it's like when you ask you and I've already done the prep work that's <laughs> really fair but Johan Johan number one now number two is a tough one because I thought I went on the a lot of the stuff from last year but he's not going to be in the league this year he's going to be over in Gloucester I was going to go with Vian Conradi based on he led the league in tackles, but he yeah. also was very effective. I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone hit Samu Manoa as hard as he hit him this year. I think even Samu got up a little surprised, like, hang on, that doesn't happen to me. Um, but he's at Gloucester, so I'm going to go his teammate, Joe Johnston, who's coming back. Uh, the mechanic, you know, he spends so much time under the hood doing the dirty work that you kind of forget how good Joe Johnston actually is. So well, Joe Johnston is right. another Lucas Rumble, right? He's another guy that yep. can blow the ball down, right? So... It, it, He's another flanker, gets in, does the dirty work. You don't see it, but all of a sudden the opposition, it takes them another second or two to win that ball. And that second or two in defense is like that. That's just, you know, that's the fuel that can create a great defensive structure. All right. All right. Who's your number three? So, you know, this is this this one was hard for me because I think there's, um, you know, you, you know, I, we talked about JP Duplessis and being able to defend right in front. One of the things that I think we're going to see this year in um, Major League Rugby, because we've seen it evolve all the way from the start, Dan, is there's going to be a more sophisticated kicking game. And so having back three players that can that are really good under the high ball and can return kicks and, and can, um, uh, you know, field the high ball, run, pass, kick are going to be really important. And that, you know, if you have someone back there like that, it makes the attack think twice about kicking. And so... Um, Adrian Carlesse, who was, was at Atlanta, is now at Dallas. That's someone that I think is, you know, can field the ball in the air, can kick it back, can run. He, his positioning is really good. He's a, one of those really good back three players that I think we don't always consider them as part of the defense, but they are, right? That, you know, when you coach defense, you think about that as an, an important layer. And so I think, I think he's one of the best guys back there um, one, when the opposition kicked. So I think um, Adrian's the guy I'll go with. So I'm going to save that for when I do the assistant professor's breakdown of kicking in rugby and actually give like the high level kicking analysis. I'm going to go with Will Leonard, uh, 13, hardest position to defend in rugby. So outside center, 13, difficult channel, a lot of runners coming from different angles and uh, unfortunately a lot of space and a lot of decisions to be made quickly out there. Will not only was the number one you know tackle count for outside centers, but he was the number one back in all majors of rugby. In fact, he led New York in tackles as well. So there was no forward at New York who had more tackles than Will Leonard last season. So impressive numbers. Uh, not if you're, you know, Will Leonard. You know, the last thing you want to be doing is have one of your attacking players draining themselves, tackling that much. But uh, he, he rolls his sleeves up and does it. And funny enough, he's headed to Atlanta. I think he's really going to thrive. Uh, we saw his old teammate, Mark O'Keefe, have a great start to the year in that system as well. He's shifted off to Austin, but I think Will suits Atlanta's style quite well. I think and we right. could see a really good year out of Will Leonard uh, in Atlanta. And, and Dan, just to talk a little bit about the 13, the outside center, and why it's such a hard position, because I said, 
you know, defenses have to make a choice, right? And that choice is, do you defend the space in front of the attack or do you defend wide? The 13 is the person that has to do both, right? So the 13 is the person that has to launch hard, try and cut off the attack, try and get there before the ball gets there so the attack can't go wide. But then if the attack gets outside them, they've got to be able to defend the width. And that's why it's the most it, it, it is the most difficult position on the field to defend because it's the one person that has to do both of those things in a defense. And um, I, I I like the choice of of War Leonard. I think I think I think that's a good one. Um, and I think that will you know I, I will say that there's there's one person that I'm going to shout out because the decision making of the twelve in defense is really important. And and even though they don't make a lot of tackles, they're often the person that can communicate. And I'm not sure I've seen anyone in the league as good as um, uh, Shalom Suniula do that when he was playing 12 for Seattle. So, you know, if you want to see someone who can change their lines, be able to communicate around them and be able to read what's going on in the attack, which is like a, like it's maybe the most difficult skill to learn. Shalom does, has done that so well over the years for, for Seattle that when he's not there, their defense basically doesn't work. Right. Um, what he was communicating after all these I spoke to Brad Tucker and JP Smith. And they said what he's actually saying is when he's pointing, he's going, yours, yours, yours. <laughs> and that's why he's so good. He's like, well, he's like, like, and like JP. in his early 30s. He's like, I'm not making any of these tackles. He's like, you take him, you take him. As long as someone takes them. Like when I played, they like like when I played fly half, they used to call that the English point tackle. Yes. You point it and go, your tackle. Yours. Always. Always. Yours. Yeah, I used to, whenever I saw Samu lining up, I'd be like, "Hey, get off quickly! He's yours." I'll get I'll get the blind winger if he comes in, though. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about him. Now Johnny Ryberg's playing. You imagine that? I don't have nowhere to oh, hide. Oh man, I would Ryberg not, and yeah. Samu running me. Anyway, we're 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 reminiscing too much here. We're going to the fog of, of past glories. It's starting to cloud my glasses up here. Great show, Pete. Great show. When this one drops, we'll be a little uh, over two weeks away from game wow. one, 2022. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's it's right. It's it's, it's right here. So so catch our stuff on, on the Rugby Network and, and wherever you get your, your, your podcast. Um, leave your reviews. Love to hear from you. We got we got a little tw- a couple of Twitter shout outs. So um, look for, look for, um, MLR kickoff on Twitter. Um, you know, if you have questions, let's start putting those questions there and we'll see if, see if we can get to it. So love to hear from the fans of the show. Um, see if we can uh, get a little Q&A with the professor. Yeah, let's challenge the professor. Get, get some questions in there that you want to really get answered sometimes. Yeah, well, we know, like, like if, if you're a long-time listener to the show, that's easy. Just make it a pop culture question. You can test me with... I, one last tangent, I swear to God, and then we'll be done. Uh, we did a pop culture quiz. We had a little couple's dinner a couple of nights ago, and they were shocked because just, we've just moved. So we're in a new neighborhood. This should be in the banter section. I'm sorry, everyone. But just moved, and we played Battle of the Sexes. And I had the game won within 15 minutes, and they were just like, how does your husband know all this stuff? How does he know who the Powder Puff Girls are? And I'm like, hey, reten- retention of useless knowledge is my strong suit. Well, I mean, Dan, to be fair, like both of us on the road a lot, you've got to fill time, right? You've got to fill time. You get to the point where the United, uh, um, like, like yeah, the, you've seen all the United shows. There's nothing else to see, right? Like, you must have watched Bohemian Rhapsody 
30 times last season in legs. I just fast forward to the live aid, watch the live aid bit and be like, ah, how good is Freddie Mercury? All right, let's wrap it up. Another show for the professor, Pete Steinberg, Aaron Castro, Ryan Ginty, our partners at the Rugby Network. I'm Dan Power. This has been the MLR Kickoff.